What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are those of your host and that of the guest. Uh, today's guest is a brother by the name of Jerry Lund. He's a fire captain out in uh, central Utah, and uh, he and I have a fantastic conversation about growing up, life in Utah, and what it's like to be in the fire service out there. We also talk about a wide variety of other things. I hope you enjoy. So Jerry, thank you so much for sitting down and rapping with me. And um, I, I love that we had the opportunity to do this in person, face to face. And um, if you're, uh, I'm not sure how we're going to cross post this, but <laughs> you and I recorded one for your yeah uh, for your podcast, which is titled Enduring the Badge. Yep. And um, so that was really cool. So somehow we're going to bookend these, or I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do something. It'll be cool. Yeah. Um, so you may have heard us talk before, or maybe not yet. We'll see. We don't know yet. It'll um, be totally different no matter what. 100% different. <laughs> so Jerry, um, I wanted, so we're flipping the script here, and I wanted to talk a little bit about you and your background and the journey that you took into the fire service and some of the some of the struggles you've had. And, and now as a company officer, some of the... Um, some of your philosophies as an organizational leader. Um, but let's talk. So let's start at the beginning. So first of all, um, you were here visiting today in sunny, slightly rainy, kind of partly overcast (laughs) Utah, but you did not start here in Utah. So tell me, where'd you come from? No, I uh, was born in Southern California and was raised up in, in California, just bounced around for about 16 years. And, uh, honestly, how we ended up in Utah is kind of a different story in itself. Um, uh, after my parents got divorced several years later, my mom, uh, remarried and she remarried a, uh, not very upstanding, uh, man. He was very abusive, uh, was an alcoholic and just really just, uh, it was just a tough, super tough situation for, uh, two older brothers and one younger brother. So there's four of us and it was just a tough situation. My mom was doing everything she could to make ends meet and just struggling that way. And then on top of that was uh, my stepdad just being the abusive asshole and it just snowballed into other areas of our lives. So eventually on my 16th birthday, when I think he would, wouldn't think we'd leave or had some free time, my mom figured out that we just actually loaded up our car with a uh, with whatever personal belongings we could take and came to Utah. What, what, why Utah? Um, my grandparents were here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So we had just a little bit of family here. Um, and that was just going to be our, our safe haven. So you moved right in the middle of high school. Yeah. And I, that was a, I had a similar experience moving around, um, in high school, I ended up going to four different high schools. So how was, rough. it was horrible. <laughs> um, although I will say I learned a lot of skills about socializing and learning how to make friends and blah, blah, blah. Like this, it was not terribly bad, but I, I don't know if I was uniquely equipped for it. How was it for you? Um, I did learn some unique skills and I'm not too proud of all of those skills, honestly. <laughs> so it was very tough. Um, right. You can imagine a California kid kind of surfer type, you know, outlook on life a little bit and long hair. And I moved to Utah, which is nothing like that, you know, more camo outdoorsy. Um, and then that was one side and then you had very preppy people on the other side and I was nowhere. And were you, would you consider yourself a pretty liberal kid? Yeah. Yeah. Liberal upbringing. Yeah. 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 And so, Oh man, that was just a tough, tough adjustment. I just like could not figure out how to like fit in. Cause in California, when the bell rang to go to class, like you went to class, if you didn't go to class, you went to detention. 
I remember my first couple of days in high school here, and it was like, was that the bell to go class? Yeah. I mean, was that like the final bell? Yeah. Like, why is everybody in the hall? Oh, you just go to class when you want to. Slowly started to turn around, but they were so lax about that type of stuff when I came for such structure. Why so loose, you think? I don't know. Like, it was <laughs> so weird to me because California was not like that. And I'd never want to spend a day in intention in California, but yeah, it did turn around over the next few years. They got quite a bit more strict with that. But so I end up just kind of uh, in the very first initial group I fit into was kind of not very good kids, um, mischievous and stuff like that. Then I moved to a different group of kids, a group of kids that were not from Utah. We're all different races and stuff from all different areas of the world, actually. And we just came, there was about, I think, 22 of us all together. And we just become super tight because we, we were not from the inside. Mm. And I still run into that today here. Like a lot of people from Utah have grown up here and still stayed in the area. Everybody knows everybody, everybody's like friends with everybody. And, you know, and I just, that's just not something I've ever experienced. But yeah, high school was a little rough. I learned to be, um, I'm not proud of this right now, but I mean, it was either people wanted to come after me because I was from California and prove their how tough they were or how tough I wasn't. So I became, I don't want to say a bully, but I like stood up for myself. And if I felt like something was coming, I would just go after it. So I really had to take that attitude. And that group of kids would always like end up backing me up. We got into lots of miscellaneous trouble, just being kids and exploring things and doing stuff. But that's kind of like, you know, it was, it was a struggle to, to fit in. Yeah. And it still is a struggle for many people to fit in to Utah. Yeah. The, well, there's, there's definitely a culture here. I mean, driven by the LDS church and, you know, that can create kind of a, a unique paradigm. Yeah. Right. And coming from outside that paradigm and trying to fit in, uh, you know, absolutely challenging. I don't care where you are, but that's definitely a challenge right. to fit in. I mean, I, for myself, moving from high school to high school, Every time I showed up, I had to find my, my social group. Yeah. Right. And yeah. for me, um, at the time I was into hip hop and, and break dancing. So there was always, I just look for the kids spinning on cardboard, right? That would be my group, my click. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also the other, the other thing I had was sports, right? So, uh, for me, it was, you know, high school football and track. And so that was the natural, like friend group built in, you know, you go and bang heads with somebody on the football field and you had your friend group. Yeah. Did you, yeah. were you playing sports at the um, time? I, did swimming for a while. I played soccer. Um, honestly, we we're very poor at that time. And so I didn't have uh, opportunities to play a lot of sports just financially and trying to work and stuff like that. We actually lived in government housing. It was not an easy time, as you can imagine, just picking up all your stuff and just trying to start life over again and yeah. trying to hide at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so as a, as a young man, so now we know we are here years later in the fire service, right? What prompted you to go down that path? You know, that's a interesting story. So when I lived in Southern California in Camarillo, we always would walk by the firehouse. It was just kind of a smaller town back then. And I always remember those guys uh, being out there, like shining up the rigs and stuff like that. And just being super friendly. You know, it seemed like they're for me, like, and I was just like young you know, walking to school with my brothers and it just seemed like they were always out there, always chatty, always saying hi. 
um, I ended up becoming a friend of a kid who was, uh, had some special needs and I'd be visiting his house and his dad was a firefighter and his dad and the guys would come over and stop in and say hi. So I think it just early on that just connection just always had, you know, intrigued me. And then as I got out of high school, I looked at doing construction and, um, was a helicopter mechanic for a while and did some like lots of different various skills, jobs and stuff. And I ended up just, uh, meeting up with a couple friends and just like, Hey, after high school, they're like, there became firefighters like, dude, you should do it. And like, I don't know, man, I don't know if I can cut out for it. And that <clears throat> back then I was not, uh, I didn't like lift a lot of weights. I wasn't really into that type of stuff. You know, I played soccer. So I was like lean and run around type of person, not like, Hey, go do the, you know, the test entry level test and be successful. Cause I wasn't a couple times. Well, and I would say, I think we all have this, I say we all generally there's this idea, right. That, uh, that firefighters are this large, big, robust human beings. Right. Um, and you're like, yeah. no, that's not me. And that's yeah. might've been your experience yeah. as a kid. You're looking up at these giant men who are, you know, not in the same league. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, eventually, um, I was just persistent, you know, I just decided I really wanted to do it. And so I, um, at that time when I was taking some of those tests, I didn't have any certifications and it was just open to anybody that put you through. Well, what, ch- what changed for you though? Cause you were saying like the, your buddies were like encouraging you and you're like, nah, not me. I think it was just want seeing that I could actually do it. Like believing in myself that I could actually do that. Some, some confidence. If you know, right. You see sometimes your friends do, you're like, Oh, I can do that. Right. And though that makes sense. You see somebody else who's doing it. You're like, wait a minute. I know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. That can be good and bad. But (laughs) so I started to end up taking some tests and wasn't successful. End up going and getting my EMT. And then, um, I was actually in a car crash in, uh, the city that I started working for as a volunteer in Lehigh, just the neighboring town from us here. And that was in 1990. I started as a volunteer in Lehigh. And then about, I wanted to be more, so I took some more fire classes, and then I started testing more. And I spent about uh, about seven years as a volunteer for the EMS, and then we actually merged to both EMS and fire. I was one of the first people to actually cross over to do that. So that was a pretty, pretty cool accomplishment. And I got hired part-time uh, at another agency, Um at South Jordan fire. That's kind of really what propelled me into my full-time career. I spent some years there as part-time and then they had opportunities. They tested for firefighters and, um, what were you doing for a living this whole time while you're volunteering? Yeah. So when I was first started volunteering, I was a helicopter mechanic until they went out of, out of business. How did you, how did you land there? Uh, so interesting story. I actually started as a janitor there sweeping the floors and they had like immaculate floors. Like this place was known for its floors. So I just, it really was like people come from all over the world and be like, Whoa, those floors are awesome. They're like this epoxy, you know, and they, every, the shop was always clean and everything. So I started there just being a janitor and then they had another hanger and I went over there to manage that one. And that I think it was just my work ethic and just willing, you know, to learn new things. 
they brought me in and started, like I started working on helicopters and tearing them down. Did and, they send you to school or anything? Or they're... No, it was all hands-on. Um, any work that I did had to be like monitored and signed off by. I, got, I hope mechanic. so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was, it was fascinating. I got to work on like um, several different helicopters from all around the world. And then I went into the engine department and worked there on their engines, tearing them down and rebuilding them. And That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. Cool I, experience. I think about the the uh, fastidious nature that a helicopter mechanic would have to maintain, and every air hangar I've ever been in is like meticulous, yes. clean, and orderly. And um, I mean, because one lost bolt, right? Like, right, mm, that's a problem. Yeah, no so, auto shop. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> right. So how does that work? As a, I mean, okay, here's what here's the story I'm telling myself. Yeah. Right, you're working on a, you're doing some, you're wrenching on something. The tones drop. Your little pager goes off, and you're like, whoo. Game on. So you drop your tools, throw off your schmock, whatever you're wearing, right? what are your coveralls, and you run out. So they would let me do that sometimes. The 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 where I place where I worked was actually a little bit of a ways away. But in big circumstances as a volunteer department, like they would just I would tell them, Hey, my pager went off, like I need to go. And they're like, Okay, cool. Go right. see. Well see, then you yeah. go and you work a fire and you come back like, hmm. Where was I? <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> Where did I leave off exactly? Yeah. Well, generally you're working on such small things at a time. You're signing <laughs> like a, you know, a huge, huge project. Things take time. And so it's pretty easy to get back to where you were. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no worries, everybody. Okay, good. They're all, they're still flying. Yeah. yeah they're all still flying. <laughs> yeah. But, well, that's cool. So, so you were a mechanic for a while. Yeah. And then mechanic and then, um, I went and uh, worked as a purchasing agent for a while. So I just was just doing whatever I could to take care of my family and still look at moving up in case I never became full-time because back then uh, there was not very many full-time agencies. And when they took a test, like Salt Lake City would take a test, there would be thousands and thousands of people to take the test. And, you know, I'm not the smartest guy. <laughs> I'm not the biggest, fastest guy either. Well, I might be the fastest, but I'm not the biggest guy, but you know, it's, so it was very, very competitive. And luckily, you know, I got going back to South and I got my chance there and, um, it was just what it really came down to, to be considered full-time was for me saying, how bad do I want this? Yeah. How bad do I want it? And I would have to ask myself all the time because People were going to do fun things and stuff like that, and I would need to stay home and study. So I just kept, I just keep asking myself if I want to really do this, right? Because we have all, all these grand ideas that we want to do that we don't necessarily always put in the work to do them. We just say yeah. we want to do them. Jerry, you're bringing up a really interesting <laughs> point um, because it's easy to say, I want this. Yes. I want it real bad. Yeah. But when you it's not until you demonstrate that you know you said you you sacrificed you you didn't go out with friends you stayed home and studied that's a big difference you can yeah. want it all day long but are you willing to do the work are you willing to you know step away from the box of donuts are you willing to do what it takes to achieve your objective that's a that's a, a very intense personal um decision and a very intense personal commitment that you have to make it's it's easy to say it yeah, it, it certainly is. And there's still areas in my life I say say it is, you know, and not do it as much as I want to or should do it. But, you know, I always have the saying, are you a sayer or a doer, right? And we can say all these great, great things. And I, I, want, I want to be a doer. I, I fought in a police uh, 
firefighter, you know, boxing match, you know, and I, I have zero experience and stuff like that <laughs> up until oh. that, and up until then. And that's what I said. You know, I always want like, I, I want to be a doer. I just don't want to like talk the shit. Like I want to actually walk it and do it. Yeah. Hey, and you brought up a good point, which is, you know, you said not every area of my life is, is perfect. And yeah. that's true. 100% true of all of us, right? We're all well work in progress, trying to find our way. And I think that's, I think it's important when you realize that and you give yourself a little bit of, um, latitude to, to not be perfect, then you can, you can move forward. But if you're expecting perfection all the time from yourself, perfect compliance with your diet, perfect compliance with whatever it is you're working on, man, you're going to struggle because uh, none of us are perfect. You're going to make mistakes. It's a matter of getting back in the game and, and recommitting yourself to your objective and say, okay, what did I do wrong? What, what set me off my tracks here? Or what, or being honest with yourself, really honest with yourself, what areas of my life require some attention? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and yeah, like there's some balance in that. Um, I think too often in the fire service, we may finally realize that what, you know, what perfect, you know, realize that maybe we can't be perfect, but I want to say one of the greatest downfalls in the fire service is just looking at somebody else and thinking that they should be perfect and I could do better than them. And, uh, I think that's just one thing that is just really dragging down the fire service instead of uplifting people, you know, realizing that they're not perfect mm. and doing what it takes to make them better is where, where we need to be. How do we get there? Um, I think that's on our, on ourselves to start recognizing that and start doing that and changing that culture. So let me ask you this. How much of our critique of other people is based on our own insecurity, do you think? Uh, probably too much. Easy answer. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, and that's the problem is we're judging people based off of our own expectations of ourselves. And, you know, we have to be, you know, if we're honest with ourselves that we have areas of weaknesses and we have strengths and weaknesses, then we have to recognize that so does everybody else. Yeah. And we're all a work in progress, right? We're all trying to develop ourselves. And you don't know what's going on in that other person's life. No, no, not not for a second. Yeah. And I, I've fallen into, you know, the trap of trying to be perfect at work, what my version of perfect is, because no one else can from the outside can see what that version would be. And I've and I've tried to be perfect for everybody, and all that makes me is ineffective. Like it mm. just it doesn't make me good at my job. Like it makes me second guess everything I do. And I've, you know, I've gone to people that have maybe criticized some of the things I've done or choices that I've made. And I'm like, Hey man, I'm not perfect. You know, like help me out here. If you, there's something I'm doing, you know, and you want me to do it different, tell me about it, you know, and, and let's discuss it. Cause maybe I can make some changes because I can't make changes to myself that I just don't know about. And I don't know everything. And what, in being in the fire service this long, you know, a lot of shit has changed. Yeah. You know, and in 30 plus years I've been doing this, so much has changed. And I'm sure you try to keep up, but, you know, if you're like most of us, first responders, they have more than one job and a family and all these other things going on. At one point I had four or five jobs. So like, oh, how come you're not taking these other classes or doing this other type of stuff? Well, I'm just financially, you know trying to survive the best I can and just survival instead of actually 
you know, maybe backing down a little bit, really, truly what I need and investing in myself. Yeah. Well, finding that balance is, is a struggle, right? We always are struggling with what is the priority. And you know, when you have a young family and you're like, it's my money, 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 I can get money on the table. I got to work overtime. And, and sometimes you're blinded by that and you sacrifice relationships and you sacrifice potential personal growth. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all about being open and honest, uh, you know, and there was a time in my life when I was married, uh, and my kids were younger that, you know, honestly, it was a lot easier to be at work because things weren't good at home. And so Mm. things are, and I felt good about myself when I was at work and I didn't feel very good about myself when I was at home. So I, and I know I'm not the only one out there. No, I'm, I was about to say, hey, <laughs> you're not alone in that, man. It's sometimes I think that, um, people who become obsessed with work, that's not the right word. What is the, uh, um, workaholics? Yeah. Right. The workaholic, because, because I know where I stand at work. Right. I know what needs to be done. I, it's easy. And I yeah. use that phrase kind of delicately, but sometimes home life is not easy. Right. And it takes a set of skills that I haven't yet developed. Right. And so that's becomes problematic when your wife is holding you accountable for something. You're like, I don't understand what you're doing. I, our communication's not good. And, um, yeah, that's a real, yeah, a real challenge. Yeah. At work, we're trained how to navigate, you know, emergencies in our day and things like that. And, um, I'll be honest. I mean, what training did I have to be a parent? Probably right. not, <laughs> you know, not enough. Well, like, I will say examples of my, the parents and I'm not saying that they were bad examples and I mean by any means it's just like when you're thrown in that situation right being a parent yourself it's a lot more difficult than it than it looks yeah I've come to realize that it was my wife and I got married she was 19 I was 20 and the um the I realized early that we were gonna have to teach each other how to be into marriage because neither one of us came from good marriages or good family marriages. They're all broken up early. Mm-hmm. And so we never really good examples of what a loving, healthy relationship looks like. You know, we had to be, we even figured it out ourselves for the last 28 years trying to, you know, struggling through it, trying to figure it out. And, um, yeah, no one teaches you how to do that. No one teaches you how to be a parent. I mean, you're a product of your environment, so you got to learn. But I think what anybody who's listening, who is trying to figure that out, you know, look around you, find people who can mentor you, right? There's so many, and this is going to sound really overly stated, I guess, but there's so many good books out there that you can go and and learn from the lessons of other people who've come before you, right? And try to figure, find a path. The, um, but so speaking of which you said that you, um, you were testing around Mm -hmm. and, um, you finally got your first professional gig with South Jordan. Yeah. South Jordan. So tell me a little bit about the, the depth and breadth of South Jordan. Uh, there was a two station department. There was probably about 20, about 30 of us at that time. Um, we just, they're just one of those departments had transitioned from volunteer to full time and then started adding more full time positions. So there was like the years passed, like they hired the captains, the next year engineers and then firefighters. Cool. And so it was, it was a, I was super excited, a great agency, great, built great bonds with all the people there. Um, love the area that we served and the citizens. It was kind of a more upscale area, South Jordan is, so you didn't get a lot of the uh, crappy calls, we'll say, but you did get a lot of calls to the you know care facilities. There was a lot of them there, 
that it was a it was a great place to to start. <clears throat> I was a firefighter there for a few years, and then became an engineer, and uh, then a paramedic. A few years after that, I spent seven years there total. Um, when I got back from paramedic school, I started you know doing the acting in thing, which is incredibly hard, and it was it was just a good learning experience in a lot of ways, but I learned a lot of bad habits as a leader, I would say. Oh, really? How come? I think the generation of, you know, the leadership that was there, and maybe just as this is Jerry Lund's perception um, of the leadership that was there, a lot was just uh, do what I say and that's what you do. And I, and I'm not saying I wasn't fine with that. I was fine with that. Like uh, that's just like I that's how I was raised at home. Like I didn't ask right. a lot of, that's a lot of questions. Old, that's the old school model. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a lot of like, questions because my mom wasn't going to answer very many questions unless I wanted to do more work or you know be had my attitude adjusted. So I think I learned some bad habits that way that I carried through. Like in mm. just and that time, my marriage wasn't great. Um, my kids were young, difficult, just for me being a new kind of a new parent. And it was, I was working lots of different jobs at the time. So I think just combination of all that stuff, I was just not in a great place. Just too much work, too much. Like I let everything define myself as of being a firefighter. That's like who I am. That makes me do all the stupid shit or good shit that I do is is being defined by that job but just the leadership styles was just just not great because my boss could take say that to me and i was fine because he probably could knew how to say it better than i could say it but then when i would act in or do have you know or go on to where i am today you know that that style just doesn't work that style does not work for everybody at all um as we know right this is a big topic in the fire service the different generations hence how some of them are you know, fading out and newer ones are coming in and how we have to relate to everybody, which is a whole another set of skills. But I think that was just the biggest thing that I learned is just communication, not being a great communicator as, as a leader there. And then after I had an opportunity to, I was working part-time here in Saratoga. So one of my many jobs, Lehigh, South Jordan, Saratoga, all at the same time. Oh, so you were part of all three agencies? Yeah. Three fire agencies? Yeah. Oh, yeah, slayers. all they're within 20 minutes of each other. Yeah. And then I worked another part-time gig. So I was just got my chance to come down here to Saratoga on a safer grant. And they hired captains. Um, and I was super excited. The chief that was here was uh, just, fat, you know, was just my style of kind of guy. Like very personable. Right there we're just small, right? We're only six, six full-time guys, part-time guys. But just very connected with with the troops and I really enjoyed that, you know, opportunity to come down. He didn't stay. Um, and I acted actually acted in as chief for a year. So, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cool. As in, wow. What an eye opening experience for anybody who's <laughs> ever questions what, you know, is going on with the chief and what they're doing and not doing and what they have the power to do and don't have the power to do. Yeah. And that's it was, so was that a, um, when you have the chief of department of a of a small agency like that, was the chief a responding chief as well? Yeah, yeah. So you're wearing a lot of different hats. You have an operational hat, but you also have the managerial hat. Um, that's challenging. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I live in the city, so that makes me even more accessible. Accessible. Yeah. <laughs> Which, on one hand, you probably need to be kind of close by because you're you're. I mean, I'm thinking as a as a responding. You're the you're the kind of on duty twenty four seven as your responding chief. Yeah, because you're the command officer, right? If it's not you, then it's not anybody then else. Who? Right? Yeah. 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 And the, and the agencies that surrounded our city at that time were, were very small too. And so mutual, we had to depend on mutual aid for a lot of things, but even though, even back then there's no battalion chiefs implemented in any other departments. Right. So it was, it, it was all on you. Very stressful. Yeah. Very stressful time. Do you guys have, when you guys talk about mutual aid, um, I would, I would think that it would be pretty, you guys have agreements in place already so that if something kicks off, it's, you don't have to make phone, a flurry of phone calls. It's, it's done by the alarm room because there's already agreements in place. Yeah. We have great agreements in place with everybody. That's, that's been probably one of the unique things around here is far as attitudes. I can tell, like we'll respond anywhere. We don't care. I mean, we're happy to, we're happy to go anywhere and do anything for anybody. And I think that's the agencies around us have that same. Oh, that's cool. So so we run in my neck of the woods. We have automatic aid. Yeah. And so we have these pre-built agreements where, it's, it sounds very similar in the sense that it's like, hey, we're going to come and help you guys, you know, just call, yeah, you know, yep. just dispatch us and we're coming. And um, so it's pretty seamless and very effective uh, sharing of resources and, and, and personnel, you know, manpower to, to, to provide for large scale incidents, et cetera. And right. I think that, you know, when you have a small jurisdiction, which I know, you know, in, in your neck of the woods, you, you, you're in, you move from one city to the next, you have no idea. Like, they're so <laughs> right. seamless, it seems right to yeah. me. Yeah. And, um. And it's good to hear that it, that mutual aid is kind of seamless as well. Yeah, we, and we have a ton of automatic aid. Like our city is very unique. It's about 21 miles roughly is our service area long. And I think in the widest portion of our area is only just a few miles wide. Okay. But most of the city is only about a mile and a half wide. So it makes it very challenging. And we're bordered on one side with a mountain range and then just a very small distance you know, that mile maybe to the, to the lake. Mm. Is the lake part of your first do? Uh, it is. We, we have, I would say more of like automatic aid to the parks and stuff like that. So we okay. have, we do water rescues out of the lake and do ice rescues off. Well, it. okay. So that was my, my question was going to be, uh, you know, as I drove around the lake, I don't, it's winter time. I don't see anybody out there. So the question is, is, is that a boating lake? It's hugely popular and very dangerous, but yeah. Mm. It's a, uh, I'm surprised no one's out there. I Why mean, so dangerous? Get, it's very shallow. Oh, okay. Six to nine, maybe 14 feet in some of the places. Oh, geez. But we get these 50, 60 mile wind shifts in the city. And if you're on that lake and that shifts, then we get the huge swells. And we've had people die out there. We've had uh, some good rescues out of there as well. But yeah, it's a, it's treacherous. It's a really cool city. Like you can literally one day fight a wildland fire. Go on medicals, possibly a house fire, and do a lake rescue. I mean, I don't know where else you can do that, but here you can. That's awesome. So when you guys have the uh, – so I'm guessing you guys are all red card certified too. You yeah. You get the wildland component of it. That's uh, that's cool. You guys get to do a wide variety of stuff, which is great. The um, Do you guys have a lot of commercial in your, in your neck of the woods, or is it mostly residential? Yeah, mostly residential. Not a lot of commercial. We're just – kind of getting that commercial coming into the city. Yeah. 
yeah, it feels like it, it feels like you're this area is like kind of on the edge of a major metro. Yeah. And what I've seen in other areas is that, you know, the major metro slowly grows out and all the little towns that are kind of in between start to flesh out as people move out there. And then you get all the amenities that come with it, right? And then of course you get people want to work nearby their home. So you start to get, you know, some of the, the more industrious type stuff build, building up and, uh, just to flesh it in. So. Yeah, 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 it's it's definitely it's one of the fastest growing cities, if not the fastest. See, there you have it. There you have it. Yeah, we're not too far away from what they call uh, like this. It's just similar to the Silicon Slope in California. That we have that in Lehigh, which is our neighboring city. So very high tech, a lot of office buildings, some manufacturing and stuff over there. Interesting. Yeah, and so you end up with some unique, unique type of. Uh, response areas when you have that, you know, especially when you have like, I'm thinking like chip manufacturers and things like that, you start getting into strange hazmat situations and, you know, complex buildings with, you know, mid rises and, you know, some high rises and stuff like that start coming into play and it changes your response paradigm. So you just have to, you know, it's one of the things you, you mentioned, you know, change and that's one of the absolute, the, uh, continuums in the fire service that there's always change in the fire service, right? As much as we hate change, it is always (laughs) evolving. And, um, I think that's fascinating. So, um, so you're a captain now and, uh, you came across into this department and, uh, cause you were at that level kind of acting out of class and you lateraled into this department as a company officer. Right. And how many years you have on the job at that point? Uh, seven full time. Nice. Yeah. So fast, fast to be a captain. Yeah. It it can be depending on the amount of experience you've had. Right. So that's a, that's an interesting, um, that question I think comes up a lot. Like what's an appropriate amount of time, how much time should a individual have? Yeah. Depends on the individual. Right. right? And honestly, our volunteer agency was so busy in Lehigh at that time. It was, was not uncommon to run 10 calls there. So I got a lot of experience. 10 calls in a day. Yeah. In a day. Wow. That seems, that seems really busy for a volunteer organization. Yeah. It's how, not, not, a, not sus- a happy, not a happy home life. How do you sustain that? Like, and maintain your work and, uh, difficultly. There were some times I've responded on calls myself and one other person, but I mean, there's agencies. I'm sure that people that are listening now that are, are doing that. They're like, yeah, they're like, they're screaming at their screaming at their phone. Like I'm doing that right now. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to hear you're crying. Yeah. It's challenging. <laughs> and I, Utmost respect for them, right? You're, yeah. Some agencies are probably stuck in that model for a long time. And luckily, you know, the area was growing so fast that we weren't stuck there. I mean, that was just a, I mean, I think in one day we did well over 10 calls and like large wildland fires and things like that. And then to think just, you know, the city is just like, we can't sustain this with volunteers. Yeah. No, I think every organization as they're, you know, as a, as a community is growing, finds that breakover point, you know, and you have that poor that poor fire chief who's, you know, struggling to figure out when is the right time, you know, politically, fiscally, et cetera. You know, do we have the apparatus? Do we have the trained personnel? Do we have to hire people? It's a lot of different questions that come into that. And that's a, um, that's an interesting problem to have (laughs) for a, for a growing community, right. To know when, like what services need to be in place and, you know, and it's expensive. So, you know, hiring people on full time is a, is an expensive proposition. There's a lot that goes with that. Yeah, so yeah. it's not just their salary, right? <laughs> no, it's all fringe, <laughs> the fringe and all the bennies. There's all kinds yeah, of stuff that goes yeah. with it, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, tell me a little bit about um, about being a company officer. It's uh, 
you know, I think just looking, I'll, you know, looking back at my career is just been a little bit of a, a rocky road. And some of that's just brought on myself by not learning how maybe to be a, a good captain, a good communicator. Um, I think over the last few years of going through some trials and stuff like that have really developed me into a, a better captain, not a perfect captain, just a better captain. Just still will always work on that. Um, you know, as a company officer, it's working with all different types of personalities. What works best for one person doesn't work best for the other. And I think it, sometimes it's easier said than done. You're like, well, you got to know your people and you got to know how to like, you know, handle things and how to say it to, to different people. But sometimes it's just general, I don't want to say orders or general, like things that need to be done in the day. And I can't cater them to every person or I will never get anything done in a day. Right. So we kind of have to be big boys and girls and, you know, realize, you know, when, whether you're the company officer or you're, you're, you know, chiefs asking you or whatever, that not everything's going to come out exactly the way you want to receive them. Yeah. And you got to be okay with that. Yeah. And I think that's very difficult um, for people these days is to be, I don't know how to put it, is just having something said to them and then it's maybe not come to them as a directly as a polite or caring or f fluffy as they want it to be and be okay with and move on instead of be just pissed off and ruined the day about it. And, and, and it happens. But you try. Like, I think you just try as a company officer to just – Depending on the crew you have, some crews get along better than other crews. Some some want to be tight knit. Some just want to, you know, shuffle off into their rooms or things like that when they can and not be bonded together. But once again, it's just a constant process of of knowing your guys and and going back to back when I first got into the fire service and being told what to do. Like your captain wasn't really your buddy. Like he was your boss. Like and that's and that's kind of how I took a lot of things, you know, going, moving forward is like, Hey, I'll, I'll, I'm their boss, but I can't really be their buddy. And when I would tell them stuff, it probably didn't come out as nice as I wanted it to come out. Yeah. And it wasn't because I had any ill intentions or didn't want anybody to be successful or anything like that. It was just a lack of education on my part and lack of, uh, maybe finding mentors that were the different kind of mentors and maybe they would mentor me to be a better captain or person. And I had to go out and, and really seek that out and do a lot of self work. And the other, you know, getting back to, I want to be perfect and I can't be perfect as a company officer, but there's just, you know, there's a lot of great things. And as a, as a small organization company officer, you're still in the mix with a lot of things. It's difficult to be your par to be a paramedic. I'm a paramedic. I'm a fire investigator. I'm a SWAT medic and a fire captain, red carded, ice rescue. Like you have to wear all these hats and you have to be highly proficient at all of them. And it's, it's difficult and draining. You know, when I do a lot of self reflection, I'm like, dang, man, I don't, I could be better at this or I want to do better at this and I need to put in the work to, to you know, to, to make myself better in this area. And I think as a company officer, I've learned to be, become very vulnerable. Um, if I don't know, or I've forgotten it, I like, Hey man, I need some help. I just say, hey, can you help me refresh on this? And cause I don't get my hands in the mix enough. Right. You're, you're in the, you're in the background assisting and you're trying to, or trying to keep your mouth shut. Right. And let the new guys learn and, things it's just it's very it's fun 
in a lot of ways. And it's just a lot of responsibility as well. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned from the very beginning there was that different members of your crew needed different things. And I thought, you know, one of the things that occurs to me, and I say this probably too frequently, but usually the leader needs to be the most flexible one, right? Everyone and, and you know, you talked about, Hey man, there's things that have to get done during the course of a day. Um, and that's absolutely true. doesn't matter when they get done. That part's negotiable, right? Depending some things, yeah, you know, yeah, some things have yeah, to happen yeah, right yeah. away. I, I get it. But the, uh, but setting, I think the thing that is interesting here is that everybody comes to work with different expectations for the day and you know, the captain does the firefighters do and whose expectations get to be the ones that drive the day. Right. Sometimes as a leader, we come in and go, Hey, I'm in charge. And so I am setting the script for the day. Here's how, here's the plan of the day. And, and they're like, well, Hey boss, I was kind of hoping to, you know, I wanted to bake this roast. It's going to mean it's got to get in the oven early. So we got to get to the store and buy some stuff, whatever. I would say, yeah, yeah. Right. Or something more serious, like, um, Hey, I got to get this workout in <laughs> and, it, and I'm doing two workouts today and I really want to get one done early. Well, we were going to go train. And that's the priority for the day, right? So sometimes you have to negotiate some of those things and, uh, you know, whose expectations rue the day, uh, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you guys get coming in and they're tired. I guess the guys are worn down by their personal lives. Yeah. Oh, they worked on. an overtime shift, right? Like that. And they got their, they got their heads kicked in. Um, that's a real concert consideration. And if you're, uh, as a leader, you come in with a fixed mindset and you're like, nope, this is how it's going to be. You're going to wreck your people yeah. and you got to give them some buy-in, right? A little bit of latitude in the day, especially when we're, you know, and you guys work what 48, 96s, right? We do. Yeah. So you're there for 48 hours at a pump. And so you got to take that into consideration that this person might have some other stuff going on. Yeah. Right. That they need. And so it's just a fun point to, to kind of illustrate that leaders have to be dynamic and, and everybody, there's so many different personality types, right? So you got to come in and, and flex a little bit. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a new thing um, in this new generation with air quotes, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I feel like it's something that um, as a leader, you don't just know that you have to learn it and it takes, it's not intuitive. No. And it's, you know, I think as a leader, you have to be adaptive. Like you just have to learn to adapt to the day. And I, I personally, I throw up what, Hey, this is kind of how I lay out the day. And during briefing, I say, Hey, what do you guys want to change? Like there's, these are some things we've got to get done. And, but let's, you know, if you want to change something up or you want to do some special training that I, I give them the buy-in, but like, you know, there's some things that you have to get done. I think comes sometimes the most difficult part is, you know, guys are shooting the shit, having fun and everything. And you're on a timeline and you're like, guys, we're on a timeline. We can't be late. Yeah. Right. I know. And the company officer, you're like, Oh, come on. Like that's like one of the hard parts for me is like, I know we want to have fun. I know we want to, Right. You know, we, somebody's roving in or whatever, and we want to catch up, but like, we still have to run the day. Right. And I think that's, those little things like that can either really make people pissed off or really make them happy if you can figure out how to adapt and negotiate through them. Yeah. And, and that's the nuance of the, 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 the subtle nuances of being a good company officer is learning how to, learning how to lead people in those in those weird social circumstances, it takes a lot of social savvy to navigate that, you know, effectively, um, being able to read your people and here's, you know, you have a small organization, so you know, everybody. Yes. So, you know, their personalities and, and, and so what would be one of the, like, when you think about you, when you come in in the morning 
and you start eyeballing your folks, you know, what are you looking for? Mostly I'm like, when I look at them is just their, their body language, I'm looking at their body language. We have some new guys. So their body language is usually ready to go. And then I have to look at some of the guys that have been around a little bit and then, you know, just kind of see where they're at. Like you can tell a lot by looking at them. Um, are they tired? Are they frustrated? Did there's something going on at home? And I, and I try to, and right. You got to take that in too. You don't want to put too much pressure on them and like, kind of like, I feel like, like break them down or, you know, put them in a bad spot. And so it's just, that's one of the first things I look at and it's, and if they're engaging in conversation, I would come in, I'm more of a quiet person type of thing. I'm more of an introvert. So I'm more of a serving <laughs> type people. So in the mornings, you know, it's not my best. And some guys aren't just morning guys. Right. But I think you just kind of have to take that in and that kind of also will dictate your day. If you have some free time that you may, you know, get a person to nap or, you know, get them some time to handle some, you know, something's going on in their personal life, you know, cause they're at work and it's not, they come to work, you know, first they don't want to call off. They just have a little bit of a problem or something going on, but they're there. And for a small department, it's huge because we don't have a lot of people to come backfill and overtime right. and, our overtime budgets already through the roof, you know, trying to maintain minimum staffing. And so it's, it's, you just have to learn to work. And I, on leadership, I really feel like we're, we're leaders and we're coaches or kind of maybe the same thing, but getting into the fire service, you get this one book says how to be a company officer. And sometimes you take that maybe a long time before you're a company officer. And it's a book. Like it doesn't, it, you, doesn't tell you how to navigate these type of situations and stuff. I think we need to be better in the fire service is going in and making sure that our company officers are getting those opportunities to go to leadership schools or having someone come in and mm -hmm. talk or have find good mentors and to set them up for success. And in a small department, there's not a lot of mentors available. So you have to seek ones from outside and, yeah. and, and who... Who, who teaches you how to be a coach? Like, wh where's the book for to teach you how to coach? And if you're like me, I don't really, like, I listen to podcasts. I do some reading, YouTube and stuff like that. But reading a book doesn't do it for me. It doesn't give me that, like, hands-on experience or, you know, being able to give some, you know, bounce some questions off and stuff like that. And I, there's... Departments of, hey, we don't want to spend money on that. Like, that we don't get anything in return from that. But, like, you really do. You're investing in these people that are leaders of the organization, which is a trickle-down effect from what we do as leaders right. down into our, to our people. Yeah. And I would, I, I would add, too, that the fire service has kind of a lifetime employment model. Right. Yeah. We don't typically yeah. like they're not here for a couple of years and they're gone on to a new thing. We have them usually for their entire career. And so we, it serves us well to invest in our people, right? Invest in our leaders. And then you have, you know, a little bit of, uh, they are, they become the mentors, right? Or you invest in, you, I, I believe that you can lead at all levels. If you're a backseat firefighter, you have a responsibility to lead Definitely. in your area. And so everybody needs that information, right? Everyone needs to, to be trained how to lead and how to, um, be a little bit more emotionally intelligent because I think that we're dealing with human beings and human, you know, you talked about the book. I flashed in my company <laughs> officer book and I'm like, Oh, I am a authoritarian leader. Oh, I am a, a, a type X leader. Like yeah. I'm like, dude, that's ridiculous. It, you have to be able to, um, 
identify the people that you're dealing with and what type of leadership they need in order to be successful. Right. right. You're kind of doing a gap analysis. Like, what can I do to help Bob be successful or Sally? You know, what, what is she missing in her training? Like you're thinking about all these different people and then it's, Hey, what are they, what's going on in their personal lives that's affecting them at work? Because this idea that we're just going to leave it at home is total BS. It is not effective. No. People carry that stuff with them no matter what. And, um, and I think that this is really, really important because I know this is something you talk about on your podcast a lot, which is the emotional burden that we carry with us. And, um, as much as we all like to think, Hey, we're tougher than that. We just, we shoulder it and we're good. Um, there's real, there's real trauma that we carry with us. And I know, you know, you have your own personal story and I would love if you would be willing to share some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and um, just to start off, I'm going to say, I think there's, we say there's a lot of type A personalities in the fire service. And I really want to call out bullshit on that. I, I think it's such, I really do think it's such bullshit. I think it's just some place that we just can prop up and hide behind this over type A. And when, yeah, you can take a test and if you're taking it like, well, I'm a type A at work. Okay. Well, you're not a type A all the time. Like, and, and type A means I don't have feelings and things like that. And you know, maybe I'm offending people out there that are all those really real type A's, real type A's, <laughs> but you got emotions and you can show them. So I was, uh, I was at work going into my story and I was at work and we got a call that sounded like a legit house fire in mutual aid into an auto aid into another city. And so we're, we're booking it to get there. And I was running down some stairs and just like felt something pop in my knee. Mm. And I was like, you know, played a lot of sports and stuff like that. I was like, oh yeah, I can walk this off. No big deal. Went on the call. Turns out, no, it's not a house fire. We're all bummed. And, uh, yeah, now my really pain's really setting in cause I don't have any, you know, adrenaline thinking we're going to do some cool work at a house fire. And, I, and it was just, I felt sick. Like in my stomach, it's like, I gotta call my chief. Like. I'm hurt. And if you've ever been hurt and you've been hurt even at work or off duty, like, no, like I hate that phone call, right? You don't want to make that phone call. I've had make it a few times. And, and so I, you know, it sends me to the ER and they're like, yeah, we can't see anything particularly wrong with it, but you can't go back to work. And so it started the cycle of like, okay, well, we're going to send you here. We'll send you to this doctor. And then they're like, Oh, you start saying you did the industrial doctors and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so they send me to that and they're really going to send you to physical therapy and then just kept going to more physical therapy and more physical therapy and more physical therapy and nothing was working. Basically my kneecap was just, would not go back into the groove. It was mm. kind of turned a little bit sideways. And this whole time you're off the truck. I'm off. No light duty. Nothing. There's just, I'm on uh workers comp, you know, workers comp is, doesn't pay a lot on workers comp, especially if you've been working a couple other jobs and now you're not going to be working those. So a little more added stress, you know, not getting back to, to work. Right. That's what, that's what I do. I'm a fireman. I, I'm like, I work hard and I love my job and I want to get back to work, you know, and it just keeps getting extended and extended and come to find out during this time there, my file is sitting on a caseworker's desk. Mm. For some reason, she just keeps saying more physical therapy, but doesn't actually review the chart. So my chief actually got involved and was like, called them and like, Hey, what's going on and stuff like that. So it started to put some pressure on them to do something different than uh, physical therapy. So I, so let me just add, so let me just say this. There's a, the dynamic in, in organizations, right? Like 
it's costing us money to have you off, right? Because now we're backfilling, oh, yeah. backfilling your position time and a half. Um, because organizations aren't staffed with like a bunch of fluff. Oh, hey, just put in a, you know, get a guy off the bench. It doesn't work that way, right? Right. So, I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but like, I hope we all understand that. And that's, it's, um, you know, so there's a bit of incentive for these organizations, especially a smaller department that is really absorbing that hit and doesn't really have a lot of, uh, slack to be able to do that organizationally. So put some pressure on uh, that organization to act. Yeah. Especially when you like have nine full-time guys and, you know, trying to run two stations and it's definitely a lot of pressure. And so the chief actually gets hold of the caseworker, caseworker decides to do something different. I get scheduled for surgery. Um, and they do some lateral release on my, on my kneecap. What, what was your diagnosis by the way? Did they-, uh, they didn't really just really give one. Honestly, it was just more of just like kneecap disalignment. There wasn't like they, they couldn't really see exactly what was wrong with it. So this was kind of like going to be like a test surgery to see exploratory. Yeah. Yeah. To That's see awesome. if they could. Get, That's yeah. freaking awesome. Yeah. Well, the best part was after surgery, um, the doctor is like, Hey, I just want you to know, I really went to town on your knee and it's going to take a lot of rehab and be painful to get back to work. And I don't know if it's going to work. And I'm like, huh. Okay. What great. does that mean? I, yeah, I went to town I, on your knee. I don't know. Like, yeah, it, I'm over here getting so yeah, nauseous by yeah, the way. Yeah. He did a release on the outside, the inside, you know, he just tried a bunch of different methods to get it to, to line up and it actually didn't work really. I mean, mm. Um, at this time I'm off work, uh, probably about 400 days already. Holy cow. Yeah. That was a long time mentally, mentally grueling and, you know, from, and grueling on the department, right. Trying to figure out what's going on with me when I'm coming back, if I'm not coming back, you know, and it comes to a point, you know, as my chief has to make a, a difficult decision and, his decision is to uh, basically terminate me, and uh, you know it's 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 very devastating to you know to see your chief and get a letter and you know basically we're going to be working you through the termination process and I'm already feeling bad enough like I've got shit going on in my personal life I'm financially strapped now and now um, I'm not going to be a fireman anymore. Right. Well, yeah, because you're not working your side jobs. You're not, no. you know, not doing any of that extra work that you were doing previously. So we get, you know, as much as side jobs are uh, extra, quote unquote, uh, they become part of the fabric of our finances, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That overtime money, that side job money, it's a big deal. Yeah. When those uh, senior guys tell you, you know, don't uh, get a lot of side jobs, don't live on the overtime. Yeah. There's a reason. Right. There's a reason for it. There's multiple reasons, but that's one of them. So, um, you know, I had a, just kind of a breakdown during that point after getting the papers, I was, uh, just, just broken, literally like broken inside and broken, you're broke physically. I'm broke mentally. Um, you know, shitty thoughts are running through my head of like, I'm not a good dad. I'm never going to be a fireman. That's all I know. A fireman defines me. That's just everything about me. You know, I call my buddies to go, like, you know, go blow off some steam, you know, so I can vent to them. You know, they uh, blow me off, and I find myself that night um, on my bed, just kind of like at the corner of my bed, and with my 
prescriptions from surgery and I'm just like, you know, I'm done. I'm over. I'm not going to fight this anymore. I'm just going to, you know, uh, take my life. I've, I've, I've watched this be done, you know, and for being on all these other calls, you know, seeing all these suicides and I'm like, I know how to do it. I'm going to do it right. I'm not going to make it messy for my family. You know, I really thought this, thought this out. And in my room, like my fire gears hanging up, you know, from other departments, I kind of have like a, my room set up as a little bit of firefighter themed. And I'm just looking at those and I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to take these pills and I'm, I'm done. And just right about at that time, like the, the, literally the pill bottles are open and I'm just like about ready to just gobble them all up and be done. And I just hear this voice from my dad. He just died about 15 years before that. And he just told me, Jay, it's not time. And that just, uh, it broke me. I basically just cried myself to sleep that day or that night. And, uh, just like emotional wreck. And, but one thing did happen when I woke up the next day is like, I realized that I was broken. Mm. I was broken. Yeah. I'm broken physically and I'm doing the best I can about that, but I'm broken mentally. I'm, I was that person that was like, if I didn't have any, you know, bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. And like, I was like, seriously, I just thought, you know, this personal rain cloud would always follow me. Like everybody's like, dude, you have the shittiest luck. I'm like, I know, I know. And I could embrace it. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's my jam. I've got shit luck and you know, shitty things happen in my life. And it was a really turning around moment. I got on the internet. I started like reading things and just changed my, like my mental attitude. But I still had to go through this, you know, experience of getting back to work and hire an attorney you know, to represent me, you know, for my termination hearing. And, you know, that's, doesn't come easy doing, doing that and going up against your department. Right. And, uh, you know, chief and I up until then had a good relationship, you know, and it's just something you don't want to do. Luckily I, I went, went, uh, went to termination hearing. They gave me 30 days and I had to go to some more doctors. You know, the doctor's like, I went to one of their, one of their doctors like, Oh yeah, you got 3% disability in your knee. You're going to have to retire. 30%? Three, three, just three. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it still hurts like hell now, but I mean a lot of times, but, but, but 3% like, you're yeah. going to have to retire. Like... Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I'm like, I like, I don't understand this. Like, so I went, I had like one opportunity to change my doctor with a worker's comp and and I did that and he I went to a doctor and he he came back and he says, "You know what? Yeah, this is a problem, but how much do you want to do with it? Like there's people out there with way worse injuries that are you know, still on job today." I'm like, "I agree." He's like, "If you want to go back to work, I'll support you with that." And he did. And you know, and I just fought back to, you know, getting back to being stronger, my endurance and everything and just embracing my new mental attitude of like Life is working for me. It's not working against me and I can give back and I've got back to, you know, better than I was before, but it's still, you know, it's hard to get over that. I mean, I, I'm, I don't have like, I'm, I moved past it, but it's just, you know, I, I feel like, you know, when I see my chief maybe he thinks about it, maybe he doesn't think about it. I like, it's water under the bridge, you know, for me, you can't go back and change anything and right. I can't take it overly personal and stuff like that, but it's still hard. And anybody yeah. that's ever had to do that is knows that just gut wrenching <laughs> pain to go through that. But those, those are types of experiences that make us better. 
Yeah. Do you feel like there's any fallout with your troops? I think there was just, there was some maybe because I don't think people just didn't understand what I was going through on workers comp. You have to follow these strict guidelines, you know, about going to trainings and going to work and things like that. And I didn't want to screw anything up. Like everything is my life is writing on this job and I will do whatever workers comp tells me to do. And that's what I did. And I think people didn't understand that. And I alienated myself from the department because I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really swing by very often and say hi and like, Hey, what's going on? And part of that was because it was hard to go by and say hi and what's going on when you, when you're not been able to work and these are your people and this is your job and this is your place where you work. And like, it's super hard. And so I, I think people misread that, that I didn't want to be there. Yeah. You know, and I started my clothing company up during that time because I thought, shit, if I'm not a fireman, what skills do I have? I don't have any, I don't have any, like I have some college, you know, and it's not put together into anything, a paramedic, but nothing is far skill wise. I have can be used outside if I'm not, not healthy to right. perform the job. Yeah. It's interesting that that in of itself is a, is a huge emotional turmoil. We start thinking about, well, if I can't do this, then what? Right. Like I'm just going to recreate myself on a diamond. I mean, <laughs> I, that's a big challenge, right? So I've had a couple interesting physical ailments myself yeah. and had, you know, had to have that talk, right. That, you know, like, so I, I alluded this earlier when we were talking, um, I, I talked about the, uh, uh, not being able to run anymore. I alluded to it and, uh, that, um, you know, I had a tumor in my spine got removed and the, the aftermath was I have some nerve damage in my leg while creating drop foot. And yeah. so I can't, if I run, I, I feel like a baby deer <laughs> trying to run my, my legs all floppy and I can't run right. And it's freaking, well, a large part of my identity was being a runner, right? Oh, I'm an endurance athlete and I'm a runner. And, uh, uh and so it kind of got taken away from me and I didn't make that choice. And I feel like you're kind of, it's in this is a total different scale, yeah. but it's the same thing, right? Like this is who I am, what I've been doing my whole career. And I have this like silly injury that is like totally blocking my ability to continue moving forward. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a big problem for me was letting what I do for work define me who I am. Hmm. And I've had to really make changes to that because it, it's not, it's part of who I am. It's a big part of who I am. I spent at least my third of my life last year, two thirds of my life there. But you know, it's just, that's just part of who makes up Jerry Lund and you know, Ryan Gray, that's who Ryan Gray. So that's who, who we are is outside of that. Are we as a dad or as a, you know, ser doing service to other people? Those are the big parts that I want to take away from what I, how I live my life. Like the, that's, that's what defines me, not what I do for work. Right. If that well, makes sense. That's I, just kind of a jumble. Mess. But I no, but I think yeah. it takes having an event to help uh, bring awareness to that. Right. Like the, when you, we take, we do so much to get into the fire service, right. It becomes most, you know, a lot of us come from a spot where, man, all I've ever wanted to be is a firefighter. And then you get on the job and, you know, I came to it a little bit later in the game. Um, but once I got on the job, I'm like, this is it. I am, this is satisfying. And I love what I do. And, to have that, you know, unceremoniously snapped away would be heartbreaking. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like I'm in control. I want to make decisions about what I do, but the idea that we define ourselves by that, it's a part, it's a, 
you know, part of it is the community that we live in, right? The world around us puts us on a, um, I hate to say it this way, but it's the only way I can think of, puts us on a pedestal, you yeah. know where I'm going, yeah. right? And so because of that, we're like, ooh, this is, this feels good. It's, it's, a, I'm important in the community. And how do you, um, it's, it's important to gain some space from that. I think you're right. Like have other things in our lives that give us meaning and purpose mm-hmm. and, um, that's huge. And I think that, you know, part of our mental health is maintaining that perspective that, you know, you can do a lot of different things in your life and this is one of them, Yeah, you know, and you've had that opportunity and if it changes, then okay. Yeah. And I think you see some of that with the younger generations doing different things. Like, you know, they're not going from straight to high school to college and, you know, into the workforce. Now they're like, yeah, I'm going to college and I might do some other things between now and then they're like, learning to enjoy their life, I think a little more and mm. branch out before they just like, Oh, this is the path I'm supposed to do. Right. And I have to kind of admire that a little bit. Yeah. That's I, great I hope work. that's true. I, I think it's <laughs> important that people get variety of experience yeah. in their life. Right. I do feel like, you know, for me personally, you know, I came out of high school when the Marine Corps came out of the Marine Corps, worked retail, did construction, worked for a bank, which is the worst memory of my <laughs> life. Um, so I had this like variety of experiences and, um, I think it it did give me some perspective and some balance versus, you know, we've, I've watched some cats get on the job that are like 19 years old. And I'm like, dude, you need to go do something else for a minute. Because on one hand, I don't know that you have the emotional maturity to do this job and to, you know, to, to hold someone's hand when they are fading out, heading to the afterlife, however you want to say it, when they're yeah. dying, um, that takes a tremendous amount of emotional maturity to manage that. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that it, you know, and, and when you start defining yourself by your role, right, you put that, you put that uniform on and suddenly you're a rock star in the community. And I'm not, you know, I hope that doesn't sound like a too egocentric, but there's a certain amount of adulation that is given to firefighters when they show up on scene. True. And that can go to your head when you're young and immature and you yeah. haven't pro- kind of gained your feet. Yeah. I've always found that a little bit interesting as I, and I'm, I've been in the situation a little bit myself, like, I look back now, like these young guys, like, gosh, what life experiences do they have to help them get through this call? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they go on a, you know, domestic violence call and we're, you know, taking care of people and stuff like that. They've never been married or go on a pediatric and they don't have kids. And it's, it's just like, not that they can't do great things. It's just that in my mind, I'm like, gosh, that's gotta be hard. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak to it. I was <laughs> so know, long ago. <laughs> yeah, it was so long ago. I've lost my memory for that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I look at the, you know, my own son who's that age right now and I'm like, holy, there's no way they have the maturity to handle any of this nonsense. But that being said, so many young cats get on the job and do just fine. Oh yeah. Right. So I think part of, part of what I think they, I would hope they would get out of our conversation is, um, it's not easy, right? Don't define yourself as a firefighter, like find branch out, give yourself some, um, other outlets. And, um, you know, we talk about the, uh, you know, the being on the precipice of suicide and recognizing that life comes at you fast and you have to build the, uh, emotional maturity and the depth to be able to handle this. And it takes work. You know, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be willing to, um, willing to go to therapy, willing to talk to people about this. You know, I think, uh, you know, let me ask you this. What's the, what's the culture like in your, in your fire department when it comes to dealing with trauma? 
far as like trauma that I went through with, you know, just no, I just mean like, like the day to day, like the calls we run, like yeah. we run, you know, you see these horrible things and, you know, yeah. for the longest time, I, I never went to a CISDS yeah. or CISD briefing. Yeah. Um, it wasn't a thing. We didn't, you know, you just, nobody talked about it. Yeah, we, tr we do, I think really well with that. We do a lot of after action stuff. And I think in those, we, we talk about, you know, how is everybody feeling? Anybody need anything? Um, you know, if you don't want to address it now, can come back after and talk to me separately. But I think we're really, I have to be proud about that. You know, that there people are becoming more open. I think you just, you have to be right. If we're truly family, we're truly one connect and we want to do this amazing job and stuff like that. We have to be open and honest and vulnerable with people and have those hard conversations Yeah, like we talked about earlier. But they're doing they're doing well, and other you know other departments around here are even doing even better, and it's just great to see to see that happening. You know, I'm one of my personal goals is like to never let somebody go through what I had went through alone. And there's great organizations that are out there helping do that, and I'm always out there if somebody ever needs any help, you know, to reach out to me, and I would definitely do it. And I I know you would in a heartbeat too. Yeah, I mean, you got to bring me pie. <laughs> and, just kidding. and a Coke Zero. That's my that's my favorite. That's my drink. Coke Zero. There you go. Can have long conversations after that. <laughs> um, hey, okay. So let's. We've been going for a little while. Let's yeah. wrap it up. Let me give you some rapid fire questions. Yeah. Favorite part of living in Utah? Looking at these mountains that I can see from my office. Yeah, I am super jealous of that. Actually, it's gorgeous. Um, favorite favorite role in the fire department? Ooh, SWAT medic. Oh, is that, we didn't hardly we didn't talk about that. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Uh, that's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it for rapid fire. Hey, man, thanks so much for taking yeah. some of your time and, yeah. and hanging out with me and and sharing your story and and sharing some of your thoughts about leadership and being a company officer. Really appreciate your time. No, I appreciate it. I'm glad we could actually do it in person. And uh, indeed, that was probably the best part. <laughs> right on, man. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks, Jerry, for taking time out of your day to sit and record with me. It was a great time. Enjoyed it. If you're enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, get to whatever platform you uh, you most enjoy utilizing. Subscribe, and this podcast will drop in the middle of the night. Also, go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review this podcast. Your feedback is invaluable to me. Uh, feel free to send an email if you are so inclined. If you have some thoughts or opinions you'd like to share, feel free to reach out on social media or via email. Thanks so much, and now take the lessons you've learned here today. Go out, embed them into your life, be better, do more, be more effective, kick ass, take names, go on, get some.